open it to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is a short little book about midway through the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. It is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people very much like us. And for the past few months, we as a church have been working our way through this letter verse by verse, line by line. And today we find ourselves in chapter 3, and we're going to handle a larger chunk of verses than we usually do on Sunday morning. And then next week, uh, we'll, we'll finish up chapter 3, Lord willing. And then uh, the following week, I want to encourage you to really make that a priority. May 23rd, I believe it is. We're going to pause from our Colossians series and give you an update on our new building and where we stand with that and what it's looking like and uh, encourage us as a church to really lean forward in some areas where we as a church need to. And then, uh, then late May and early June, we will finish up our series in Colossians with just probably a couple messages out of Colossians chapter 4, and then, um, and then we'll be into the summer. So uh, today we find ourselves in Colossians 3, and uh, this is the type of passage that I could probably go three or four weeks in just, this, just these 12 verses, but, or I guess, yeah, 12 verses, but I'm going to do something a little uh, different. I'm going to kind of do more of an overarching thing rather than drill down on each verse and this is the type of passage that really I wish, I really wish this, that we could all kind of cram into a living room and sit down on a couch with our Bibles in our laps and I could have like a big whiteboard with some low odor uh, Sharpies or, you know, the, the, the erasable kind and I could just, we could just write on the board and um, maybe, you know, just, I could break in, write a couple football plays on there and we could just like Vince Lombardi, you know, run to the daylight. Anyway, never mind for those of you that are football fans and Grew up watching NFL films like I did. But this is just really practical living here. And what's happened is in the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul has been writing kind of overarching doctrine, huge theological truths that are kind of like 30,000 feet flyovers of Christianity. This is what it looks like from the cosmic level. And now in chapter 3, he begins to land the plane and unpack in a very practical and pointed way what this truth should look like in our lives. And so we're going we're gonna to go through that in chapter 3. All right, let's do this. Let's, uh, we, a couple weeks ago, we covered Colossians 3, 1 through 4. But I'm going to start again and read in chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 3, and read all the way through 17 to give us a feeling for this whole line of thought. I'm going to read through it slowly. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to make uh, about five points about this, just kind of overarching points. So let me read in Colossians chapter 3. And as I read, we, have a, we just have a fundamental value here at Crosspoint, that everything we do is centered on the Bible. Like we don't worship the Bible. The Bible is, is not something that should be held up as an idol. But it is God's written word. He divinely inspired it. It's completely true. We have, we have that value here that we believe that the Bible is inerrant. We think it's without error. We believe that it's given to us by God. Now, if you don't believe that yet, that's okay. We realize that coming to that position is, is, is a matter of faith, and that's faith that God needs to give you. That truth can only be revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And so if you're struggling with that, that's okay. 
But realize here, whether you are discovering Christianity or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, that one of the most important things that we do here is read the Bible and preach and teach out of the Bible, not out of topics. And so I'm going to read this scripture, and even as I'm reading it, I'm going to believe and pray that the Holy Spirit would come and seize our hearts and bring wisdom and illumination and life to our souls. There is power in the Word of God. So let me read, and let's humble ourselves before God's written revelation to us. The Apostle Paul writing, and he says in chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, uh, we are feeble, distracted, selfish people. And I am a self-absorbed, hypocritical, insecure young preacher. And so we need more than just 
public speaking skills and coffee to help us this morning. We need the power and the wisdom and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray and ask God to help us understand. Oh, Father, you're so good to us. You're so kind. You are. Your love is indescribable. As we gather together in this room on this beautiful day outside, we do thank you for our mothers. Lord, in particular, I'm thinking of several in this church who have lost their mothers just this year. I pray, God, for a special sense of your grace around them and in them. Uh, Lord, I think of Avery Wolf, who for the second time in three years is away from her husband as he is deployed in Afghanistan serving our country. Bless that mother and give her strength and encouragement and endurance as she labors well. Lord, I think of maybe some young ladies in this congregation who are struggling, wanting to become mothers. God, would you encourage them? Would you, would you, God, give them perseverance? And in the midst of their endurance, would you create in them a dependence on you to a far greater extent than would they have never gone through the weight? And now, God, as we lift our hearts and our minds to this scripture, it is, it is literally packed full of spiritual truth and admonition and direct truth for us. But God, we're people that spend more time recreating and wasting our life away in leisure and self-absorption than we do thinking about the things that you have called us to. So God, we need your Holy Spirit to graciously but yet forcefully shake us today and to tune our hearts and our distracted minds into your truth. God, there are young men in this room who need, they don't need, they don't need practical tips on living. They need the power of the Trinity to overpower their resistance today to your good grace and to make Jesus altogether supreme and more lovely than the broken things that lure them away. God, would you do that today? God, would you help us to not just do a church service today, but by the power of your Holy Spirit and your sovereign grace, would you mix the Spirit with your Word and would you break through our feeble minds today, God? And with just the practical advice of the Apostle Paul, penetrate us and absorb us and stamp itself to our lives and Would the person and work of Jesus rise from amongst these words? And would what comes out of this be more than just a to-do list or a don't-do list? But would would the all-surpassing jewel of Jesus stand out from this written word? And God, I I confess that I, I am a mixed bag of contradiction just this morning, God, I... I hastily yelled at my child, and I need your grace. I need your grace today. 
And so as we open up this book, God, would you meet us? Would you meet us? And God, if there is a person in this room today that does not know Jesus, God, would you break through the hardness of their heart? Would you make Jesus altogether lovely? And would you cause them to repent and believe and treasure Jesus? And for the rest of us who are already Christians in this room, God, would you stir our affection? Would you stir our hearts? And would you cause us to see and savor and long for Jesus? I pray these things in His supreme, sovereign, precious, beautiful name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Five statements, and then we'll respond. Five things that I think come out of this verse. Number one is that the Bible takes sin very seriously, and so should we. The Bible takes sin very seriously, and so should we. Go to verse 5. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, listen to this, the wrath of God is coming. One of my favorite uh, figures in the history of the church is a man named John Owen. He was a Puritan pastor, theologian, and writer back in the 1600s and early 1700s. He wrote a book. It's a, one of the landmark books in the history of the church, and it is called The Mortification of Sin in Believers. I love the Puritan's titles. That means literally the killing of sin in our lives, that we are to be about killing sin. And this is what John Owen says in that great work. It's one of the famous lines in the history of church. He says that we should be killing sin or sin will be killing us. This verse from the Apostle Paul states very clearly that we are to be, as Christians, people who are very, very serious, that we ruthlessly go after the sin in our lives. Now, a couple of things that the Apostle Paul mentions here, and this is not an exhaustive list of what sin is, but he mentions they were to put to death what's earthly in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I'm not going to take the time. I mean, this, I, I, I have to admit that when I was kind of mapping out where we would be on Mother's Day and I read this, I went, oh, great. <laughs> this is awesome. We're going to talk about this on Mother's Day. Uh, w- what I think we'll do is handle this at a later date and more in depth. But I do just have this burden to share with you, especially some of you young folks, that the Bible um, clearly tells us how we should comport ourselves sexually. And just a little parenthesis here in the message I define, and I think the Bible defines sexual immorality as any type of sexual contact or activity outside of marriage, any type. And Paul is writing to us in this scripture, and he's writing to the Colossians, and he's saying, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon us. Now, we're going we're gonna to bring this back around and see that God actually calls us to a life of joy and, and satisfaction in him. And then he goes on to say, that, that impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness is it's idolatry. And idolatry, sometimes in modern-day America, we think of kind of a statue of some Middle Eastern or Far Eastern little Buddha figure. But idolatry is really putting anything in the place of God. It's worshiping created things over our Creator. And Paul is telling us that this sin, in particular these sins that he is mentioning here that are kind of sexual in nature... 
bring about the wrath of God if they are not atoned for by Jesus. And I want to just for a moment give you a thought about that word, the wrath of God. When I say the wrath of God, I think sometimes we tend to think of kind of like a mad, angry, grumpy, grandfather-like figure who's up in heaven with his arms folded, who just wants to mess with us, kind of like an angry Greek god. But that's not really what the Bible has in view when it talks about the wrath of God. When you see the wrath of God, think, think of God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice and his purity and his goodness. This is what J.I. Packer, who is kind of like the, the godfather of good theology for this generation. He's well into his 90s. He's an English man, and he wrote the book Knowing God, amongst many others. If you, you would do yourself well if you bought the book Knowing God and used that as a lifetime resource. But this is what J.I. Packer says in his book about the wrath of God. He says, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of wrath. And so what Packer is saying here is he's saying that God is maintaining his holiness. He's maintaining his purity and his beauty In that he is carrying out divine justice on all rebellion. And so, boy, what a way to start a Mother's Day message than to say God's wrath is coming. But that could be the very most loving thing I can say to you. And here's the good news of the gospel, friends, is that in response to human rebellion, which is the thing that brings God's wrath, God has given a substitute. He is giving a wrath-absorbing substitute in our place, and that is Jesus. The Bible in the New Testament, I won't take the time to read these verses, but the Bible is very, very clear about this. Romans chapter 3 in particular, 1 John chapter 2, uses this word to describe what Jesus did for us, and this word is propitiation. Probably never heard that word much before other than maybe here at Crosspoint. Or if you've read the Bible, propitiation means that Jesus was offered as a sacrifice of atonement. It means that Jesus bore our, the wrath of God that should have been ours, and he turned that wrath, that justice, into favor. So he absorbs the punishment for guilt and turns it into innocence for those that will repent and believe. And so, let me just... If you're not with me, be with me on this, friends. This is not a particularly pleasant thought, but it's one of the most loving things I can say to you. That the wrath of God is coming on all people who do not repent and believe and trust solely in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That you repent, you turn from self-reliance, and you trust in Jesus' sacrifice alone. Those and only those who do that are saved, are rescued from the wrath of God. And Paul is clearly saying that. The cross is the wrath-absorbing work of Christ. That's number one. The Bible takes sin very, very seriously. So should we. Now, I'm not some fire-breathing preacher that's just up here saying, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't, you know, watch rated R movies. You know, God's going to get you for that. When I read this, I have to 
I have to look at my own life and say, am I being ruthless in killing sin and going after sin and stamping out sin? Or am I being reckless? Am I sort of in a laissez-faire sort of way, just resting on, oh, well, at the end, God's going to take it out? He'll understand. I mean, he'll understand. He, yeah, he understands his holiness and he executes it because the best thing he can do for us is to remain righteous and beautiful and just. And so I look honestly at my life and I just look at how spiritually lazy I am. And this verse is not, I think, a sign to us if we're Christians that we will lose God's salvation if we sin. It is a, it is a burning reminder that we are to be drawn into God's holiness, but that God is utterly serious about life and obedience and response to him. All right, we're done with that point. You can relax. The Bible takes sin very, very seriously, and so should we. Number two, Christ is all. Christ is the means and the goal. Let's keep reading. Verse, verse 9, it says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator, which is Jesus. Then verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. I'm not sure what, a, again, a Scythian is. We've gone over this a few times, but I wish I was a Scythian. I mean, what a, where are you from? Scythia. That's just a great place to be from. There's not a barbarian or a Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Listen to me. Listen to me on this point. Most of modern-day American Christianity presents Jesus as kind of the means to a more prosperous life here on this earth. That, friends, is not the message of the Bible. What Paul is saying here, and through the balance of the Old Testament, is that Jesus is life. That worshiping Jesus, reveling in Jesus, is life. That Jesus is not just a ticket to get to a destination, but He is the means he is the sacrifice, He is the Savior, He is the King, He is the one who paves the way, and then after He gives you access, He is the one to which you are to be, to be worshipping, to enjoy. He is the means and the end. But we in America have boiled down Christianity to seven steps to being a better leader, or eight steps to having a better marriage, or nine steps to having a better Thursday. Look, I'm not saying that the Bible's not full of tips for practical living, but when you stop on that, you make Jesus merely the means to an end, and that end is a better life here and now. But that's not the message of the Bible. Jesus is the goal. In fact, verse 4 that we just read, it says, When Christ, who is your life, appears. Look, if you're a Christian, your future is worshiping, enjoying Come on, do we got some Presbyterians in here? What's, what's the first statement of the Westminster Catechism? You failed this miserably a couple days. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Oh, we got some Presbyterians. Okay, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus is the all-surpassing worth, treasure, means, end, prize, jewel, pearl of great price. Jesus is life. But we've boiled down the message of the Scriptures so that Jesus is kind of a means to a more prosperous life or a means to more self-esteem or a means to advancement in the, in the corporate world. Come on, friends. 
The Bible presents Jesus as the jewel that is our life. He's the means. And He's the goal. Number three. And this is so important. This is so important. In fact, I think this is probably the thing that I want to communicate to you most here. Is that Paul is making an assumption. An assumption that we must catch, I think, in order to really understand the gospel well. Paul is arguing that we should live from life, not to life. And what do I mean by that? Paul is saying that you should do these things. You should be able to put to death. You should live this way together. You should be able to kill this sin in you because of the life that you already have in you as one of God's children, as an adopted son or daughter of God. Not do these things so that you will get life. Because... If you're remembering, at the end of chapter 2, Paul goes through a whole list where he says, don't do that. You know, the, the religious legalists say, don't do that, don't do this, do this. And Paul's saying, no, no, that is not grace. The, the gospel has come and you're saved by Christ alone. But then, in chapter 3, Paul gives us his list. And so really, what's the difference between Paul's list of living for Christ and the list that he refutes at the end of chapter 2? Here's what Sam Storm says. He is the writer of this beautiful, very helpful devotion on Colossians. It's called The Hope of Glory. If you don't buy any book to help you understand Colossians other than this one, you will do well. Sam is a gifted writer and pastor. He pastors a church in Oklahoma City. And I have great respect for him. If you see a book and Sam Storm's name is on it, buy it. This is what he says of this verse. He says, legalists of whatever variety typically argue to life that is to say and when he's saying legalist he's talking about people who you know want to be real nitpicky about following biblical commands and believe that our standing with god comes based upon how well we are able to follow the commands of scripture which is important but the basis upon which we are accepted in god is what christ did not what we do so a legalist is somebody who wants to hold that out as the means by which we Uh, are accepted by God. So he says, legalists of whatever variety typically argue to life. That is to say, they identify the good one must pursue and the bad one must avoid as a means to gain favor with God or as a condition on which he may be disposed to grant life. In other words, if you do this, it's like a little carrot. They, they, They hold out obedience to Christ as a little carrot. You ever taken swimming lessons and like the lady that's helping you swim as a child like Jesus, jump off the stairs, little Johnny, and come to me. And then when you're jumping and you're just barely treading water, feeling like you're about to go under, then she starts backing up. You ever have that type of, you know, that's kind of the way, that's kind of the way legalists present religion in, in Christianity is, come on, little Johnny, come on, little Johnny, you can do it, you can do it. And if you happen to get it, then you, know, you kind of have to maintain that treading water performance else you might lose it. I mean, that's disparaging. So let's go back to uh, uh, Sam's quote. He says, that is to say, they identify the good one must pursue and the bad one must avoid as a means to gain favor with God or as a condition on which he may be disposed to grant life. Paul, on the other hand, together with the other New Testament writers, argues from life. Listen, this is critical. Holiness is portrayed as the fruit of acceptance with God, not the root. So it's not, well, God, 
God will give you this if you do all these things. But the Bible turns it around, and this is the gospel of grace, that God gives you this, and as a result of what God did in you, apart from your good works, fruit will necessarily, to some degree, grow. So, holiness is a fruit of God's grace, not the thing that we plant that then gets us accepted by God. We already are. Listen, this, is, this applies to you if you're a Christian. We already are the favored and beloved of God, made such by sovereign grace alone. And it is on the basis of this glorious truth that we are inwardly impelled rather than outwardly compelled to express life, not earn it. You see that subtle but all-important truth. And friends, I believe that this, this comes from the statement that Paul makes in verse 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones. I think that the grounds for this confidence is based on God's electing love. Now, this is a doctrinal stance that I hold to, that you don't have to hold to to be a Christian or to even be a member of this church, but I believe that God is utterly sovereign in salvation. And I believe that I am a Christian, and I believe that if you're a Christian, you're a Christian, because God saw fit free of any work in us before the foundation of the world, saw fit to, in His mercy, set His love on me. And the reason that I am a Christian is because God first loved me and moved in my heart when He saw fit to make Jesus altogether lovely and irresistible so that I would turn and receive Him. And Paul is saying to them that you should be confident because God chose you long before you even knew which way was up. Listen to some of these scriptures that regardless of where you stand on this difficult concept, hopefully will cause you to swell in confidence. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, listen, just listen to these words. And if you are struggling in your sanctification, if you are struggling in your pursuit of Jesus, let these words produce comfort and confidence in you. He says, Blessed be the God, Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is past tense. He's, he's done it. Verse 4, listen to this. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So regardless of what you believe about God's sovereign grace... That statement's pretty clear that God chose us not based on you cleaning up your act and quitting this or that. But he set his love on you before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have, we have it. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, not according to our performance. And so if you are a Christian, you were made a Christian by God's grace. Now you may say to me, Brad, this is a terrible way to motivate people to live for Jesus. Right? Because, I mean, if I was a football coach and if this was practice and you guys were having a sorry practice, 
And I blew the whistle and I said, come, come in here. here here's the deal here, uh, uh, men. If for the next hour you will run every play with perfection, then you won't have to run wind sprints until you drop at the end of practice. Ready? Break. <laughs> we'd all go out and we'd, has anybody ever been in a situation like that? And so you're saying, Brad, this is counterintuitive. Why, why think about God's grace and what He has done in the past as the basis for our motivation to live for Him? Because now the temptation is, well, God's done it. Say la vie. There's no care in the world. I'll just, you know, lay back in the recliner and chill. Why pursue God? I mean, God has either done it or He's not done it. Well, here's what I would say to that. Number one, if that's your attitude, then I would refer you to a very scary chapter. And that scary chapter is Romans chapter 6, where it says that if you think that God's grace was given just so that we can continue to sin, that is evidence that you are probably not truly a recipient of His saving grace. Let me say that again. If you think that God has given us grace so that we could sit back and not pursue Him, that is probably evidence that you have truly not received that grace. But God has given us grace so that we would be confident, so that rather than being insecure about whether or not God will continue to love us based on whether or not we have a good week, we will run headlong into His grace and His joy and His fatherhood because we've been adopted by Him. Let me go back to a coaching analogy. Picture it this way. Think about a little boy who's playing Little League Baseball. And... Boy number, boy number one has a father who is, who's, he's good, but he's pretty demanding. And uh, he puts a lot of pressure on that boy to do well each time he's up to bat. And that little boy uh, spends a lot of time practicing late at night, taking batting practice in the backyard. And he feels a lot of pressure to perform because he knows that a lot rides, that the relationship that he has with his dad rides a lot on how or not, how he does when he's, at the plate and if he comes up in a game and he gets a couple hits things are good with his dad but if he strikes out or if he lets a ball roll through his legs or if he's you know playing with the butterflies out in the outfield like a lot of little kids do and not paying attention and and somebody scores because he's not really tuned in he can look into the bleachers and he can see the disgust on his dad's face and then he knows what's going to await him that week. He's going to have more practice and more pressure and more tightness. And he's going to, when he gets up to that plate, he's the type of little kid that backs out from the batter's box and he's always looking at his dad to see if his dad has an approving look on his face or not. And you know what that little boy, what is in his stomach and in his mind every time he gets into the batter's box? Insecurity. And self-absorption because he realizes that he needs to continue his good performance in order to continue the love and the affirmation of his father. That's a terrible way to play baseball. Contrast that with the father who is gracious and loving. And says to his little boy, you're mine. The name on the back of your jersey is mine. And son, I don't care if you strike out every single time. You're my boy. You're my boy. And I don't care if that grounder goes right through your legs. And I don't care if you throw that ball over the first baseman's head every time you do happen to catch the grounder. I don't care, son. I don't care because you are my boy. 
And so rather than wondering whether or not I'm going to be pleased with your performance, just get in there and do it. Just play, son. Just play. And you know what that produces in that little boy? Not, oh, well, my dad doesn't care. I'm just going to sit in the dugout and blow bubbles. No, you know what that little boy does? He now is encouraged because of the unconditional love, the persevering love of his father to dig into that batter's box, man, to grip that bat and swing for the fences. He may strike out, but every now and again he's going to connect and he's going to rip it. And that little boy's going to dig in that box and he's going to get out in that field and he's going to pat his glove and he's going to say, better, 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 better. And when the ball's hit to him, he's going to catch it and sometimes he's going to miss it, but he's going to play baseball. He's not going to quit after literally because his dad's a jerk. He's going to keep playing all his life because he loves the game. That's by seeing this truth that God calls us to live from persevering, sovereign, unconditional love is so important for our salvation. And friends, listen to me. It should inspire us to live with reckless, secure, abandoned for God rather than causing us to be lazy. If, friends, you have felt that it has caused you to be lazy in your life, today is the day to repent and believe and see that your good father is behind you. Loving you. If you sense today that you have never really received that type of love from God, I believe that is clear evidence that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, calling you to be God's. We are to live from the life that He has already given us, not to the life that He might give us if we stay good. Number four, quickly, two more points, and then we're done. Holiness is a community project. <laughs> I mean, just look at the setting of this verse. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. I mean, just, there's all these one another's in this little short passage. It says in verse 9, do not lie to one another. He says uh, in verse 13, he says, bear with one another. Again, in verse 13, he says, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. In verse 15, he says that we are called as one body. In verse 16, it says that we should teach and admonish one another. Listen, you cannot do life. You cannot do it. And there's nothing magical. It's just a, it's just a, a way of being together as a church family. This is why I believe it's so important to commit yourself to a particular church that you will, through the good and the bad, uh, stay with and let them know your life. Just got an email, secondhand. I didn't get the email, but uh, somebody got this email and just shared it with me. Kind of uh, uh, just told me about the situation. There's just this young couple in our church and came to our church six, seven months ago and just kind of struggling and not anything, you know, horrible, but just, you know, young couple being married, just trying to figure out which way to go. The husband not really sure about how to lead. And this this young couple has just. They've just planted themselves here. They've just kind of given themselves to this church and they've connected with some friends on a personal level. And, and the husband is beginning to read the Bible and he's beginning just, listen, it's nothing fancy or magical. He's just beginning to read the Bible and he's beginning to pray for his wife. And this wife was just overflowing with joy about what it was doing in their marriage. There was just this 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 fruit of growth in them. And it's nothing, again, it's, it's not rocket science. It's just simple kind of giving yourself to a group of people, seeing how other people do it. 
realizing that it's not out of your reach. And these people are just, they're just living together and they're growing. There's a verse that I want to uh, anchor on before we move on to the next point. It says that we should teach and admonish one another. What does that word admonish mean? I mean, how often we admonish one another as a group of people? We kind of, we kind of do church. Everybody sort of keeps everybody at arm's length a lot of times. But this word, this word admonish means that we should express warning or disapproval, especially in a gentle, earnest, and solicitous manner. That we should give friendly and earnest advice or encouragement to one another. When's the last time you admonished somebody? Like, how do you, I don't even know how you do that. Like, brother, I would like to admonish you. I mean, I, I would recommend that you not use that word because it might be a little awkward. But what if we just had a... What if we had a culture of admonishment where we were humble and we just loved one another and we gained, gave each other access to our lives to where we could admonish one another and we could teach one another. And then, and then literally it says that we should, we should sing to one another hymns and spiritual songs. When's the last time you got together with a small group of people and you just sang? Even as, just picture it, just picture it right now, sitting in somebody's living room singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. I mean, just picture it. Doesn't it feel awkward and goofy? You know why? Because we're so out of touch with biblical community that just, just picturing in our mind doing life together with other Christians in that way is foreign to us. We should repent. We should repent and we should open up our lives to one another and we should admonish and teach and sing and encourage and love and bear and forgive and serve one another. And when this happens, a beautiful aroma of Christ comes from us and it's just, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful and it crosses, it crosses generational lines. It, it moves us beyond whether or not everybody likes the music. It moves us beyond whether everybody's of the same socioeconomic demographic. It moves us beyond whether we're all white or we're all black or we're all brown. It moves us beyond those things and it makes us together the collective family of God who is centered on Jesus, who is pouring out our lives to one another. And it is, it is the most beautiful thing on this earth. Oh, I long for an admonishing, exhorting, singing, forgiving, bearing, loving, serving, forbearing culture. Let's be that type of place. Holiness, living for Jesus, is a community project. Right on. And the last point. Everything means everything. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Uh, I think it's simple, but it it's good for us to be reminded that following Jesus is a call to obedience in every area of our life. Everything. Jesus calls us to live for Him as people and as a community and everything. In our thoughts, in our love, in our recreation, in our money, in everything. Jesus demands and calls for total obedience from his people. Well, as the guys come back to lead us in some songs of response, I'm going to pray, and here's my burden. Today I pray that God would break through into our hearts 
Look, the main problem in my life is insecurity and self-absorption. When I gather together with you and when I, when I, when I open my life to other people in the body of Christ, my, my heart and my life and my perspective gets big and secure. But when, I, when I'm by myself and when I'm sometimes left to my own thoughts, I shrink and I, and I reduce down God's grace and what God calls me to and I get tight and insecure. And what I pray would happen right now in my life, in your life, is that the grace of God would hit us and that that, that picture of that little boy at the plate, if you are already a Christian, that you would grab a hold, that God calls us to live from life, not to life. That there is a blessed security that God calls us to and that this should, this should compel us to live for Him, that this should compel us to open up our lives. This should compel us to confess sin to one another. This should compel us to go for all that God has for us. This should compel us to very easily forgive one another, bear with one another, and live together because God is our Father. And nothing can change that. And so I pray that for those of us that are already Christians, that that would... That that truth would drill down in our hearts and that it wouldn't, it wouldn't cause us confusion, but it would cause comfort and confidence. And if you're not a Christian here, as I pray, here's my prayer that, that right now you would believe in Jesus, that you, through these feeble words that I have offered today, that you would see Jesus and that you would become aware that you have been completely self-reliant and rebellious and that you need to turn and trust in Jesus. The Bible uses these words, repent and believe, and that today you would, you would trust in Jesus. You would turn from self-trust and that you would trust in what Jesus did and that God would save you today. And you'd become, as the Bible says, born again spiritually. And that means that you are forgiven of your sins and you trust in Jesus and you give your life in response to His grace. I pray that you would do that today. You don't have to recite a certain prayer or... Uh, come down and fill out a card. It's, it's simply something that you do. You respond to the faith that He's the, the call that He gives you right now. And when you believe in Him and you repent, the Bible says that you're a new creation. That's something that you can do in your own heart. We're not going to slap some label on you because that might be dangerous. This is how you know that you're a Christian. And over the course of time, you begin... To to be renewed in the image of Jesus. You begin to look like Jesus. Even if it's very small, you begin to love Jesus. You begin to love the things that He loves. You begin to turn away from self-reliance and trust. Yes, it is. salvation comes in a moment, but it is borne out over a course of time. And so if you are truly becoming a Christian right now, it will, it will stick in your life. And if you need to pray about that, if you need to come get a little more counsel on what that looks like or what you could do, as a great first step after this, I invite you to come down and talk to me or somebody else that you know is a Christian right after the music starts. But today I believe that there's people in this room who need to repent and believe in Jesus. Look, the Holy Spirit's talking to you right now. Don't, don't harden your heart, the Bible says in Hebrews. That knock on the door of your heart is the Holy Spirit who is calling you now to trust in Christ not yourself.
I encourage you to respond today. And Father, as we move into response through song, communion, prayer, God, would you help us now? Would insecure, anxious, self-absorbed Christians like me be renewed and reestablished and find afresh their security in your electing, sovereign, never-ending love? And when those who need to experience it for the first time, would you give them the gift of repentance? Would they see Jesus and respond to Jesus? Now, I pray it in his good name. Amen.